Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you guys are, um, I hope you guys are setting your attentions and your plans and ideas towards the things of God's kingdom. We began a new uh, discipleship or began a new uh, devotional series, uh, expanding on our discipleship devotion series from last year. And I encourage you guys to show up to that. It's really encouraging. It's really good. Um, uh, but we're looking in looking at being a disciple of Jesus. I shared this morning the, the idea that uh, complete devotion was what was called, uh, was what was asked of Jesus' disciples. And that complete devotion meant time and energy and all of those things. But in many ways, it was that their, even their dreams and aspirations were those submitted to God. And that's a hard thing for us to do. I think at times we, we look at a new year and we, we have plans, we have big plans and we kind of segregate plans that we have and then church life and whatever. Um, but discipleship really should involve us taking those, those dreams and those aspirations and those ideas and submitting them to God and seeing how he would use them, right? And seeing what he might do with everything that we, uh, we've dreamed up. Because I think in many ways he is... He has given us certain dreams, and we need to uh, respond back to him that, that we believe those to be his. So you're probably familiar with this adage that's on the, on the screen, the title of the sermon today, um, time waits for no man. That is not trying to be uh, gender specific. It's just how the original quote was, was coined, right? So time waits for no man. You've probably heard time waits for no one, and this adage, this kind of phrase is never more true than at the turn of the year at, at this time because we look back and an entire year has passed. Doesn't matter what you think of 2022. You can, you can hate it. You can love it, right? But most of us look at our watch and go, what the heck happened, right? What, where did that time go? If it was a good year for you, you're like, wow, that passed really fast. If it was a bad year for you, in the moments it was hard, but you look back and you're like, dang, it's, it's gone really, really fast. And, and when I think about time waiting for no one, I think that uh, it becomes really telling the older you get in life. So as I, uh, as I look at my daughters, I realize that I blinked and they've grown into little women Right, and by the way, if you've never seen Little Women, I am the father of Little Women. Anyway, so, right, so it's just, uh, and I even have a Joe, and it's a problem. Anyway, so no, but uh, so it's just really, um, really interesting that I look at my, especially Sam, you know, and she walks into church on several days where she's wearing her mom's clothes, and I'm like, uh, no, you can press pause on that, and you can go back. Back to baby, that was fun, right? But right, time waits for nobody, and and so I don't I don't get to I don't get to to say time out here. I don't get to press pause in this, and it's really hard at times. Um, this whole idea of time passing really fast came this week in a in a frustratingly uh, humbling way. We have movie night every Friday, and we invite Jacob Dolezal to join us. He's just part of our family, you know, and so, so we invite Jacob to join us, and we're watching a, a show, and, and somehow the conversation turned to what we do on Fridays, what people do on Fridays, and Sarah and I decided to share to Jacob, with Jacob, the idea that 
Most of you, I hope, will remember, most of you, I know some of you won't, but this concept when I was a kid uh, on television called TGIF, right? Do you guys remember it? Did anybody remember this? Okay, TGIF. And it was like this cultural phenomenon where all the people of America gathered around their televisions to watch shows. And some of the shows that I remember watching were uh, shows like Home Improvement or uh, you guys remember a show called Boy Meets World right? You know what's really crazy? Tool Time aired, Home Improvement aired for the first time 33 years ago. All of a sudden, I was like, I don't really like life right now, right? Time is not waiting for me. Boy Meets World is 30 years old. The Lord of the Rings series is like almost, if not 20 years old. And I'm like, what? is happening with life here, right? So we've got all of these things and time is moving and everything's rushing past us. And yet, what do we have to do as time rushes past us? We have to pivot, don't we? We have to embrace it. We have to welcome it. One of the things that I have to welcome as time keeps rushing forward is how sore I get when I do jujitsu and how slow it is for me to recover, which is a very frustrating thing. I wake up in the morning and my hands are all crippled like this, and I'm like, I can't stretch them out. What is happening here? I literally run my hands under ice water in the morning just to get them to work again. Like, it's, I don't like that time is passing. But you have to pivot and you have to think about that. So my pivot is lots more Advil, right? So that's what's really important. But, but you have to make those adjustments. Just like time waits for no one, and this is really important in where we're going with the message today. Just like time waits for no one, it's also important for us to understand that culture and understanding waits for no one as well. Culture is moving forward at a rapid rate of speed. And as Christians, my hope is that we will be prepared for those uh, hyper rates of cultural movement, okay? So uh, time waits for no man, culture waits for no man, no woman, it doesn't, it's, it's not pausing, it's not waiting, and in light of culture not waiting, we as Christians have a responsibility to, um, to answer the cultural questions that are coming about and to do so in a very uh, timely manner. Uh, when it comes to things like gender fluidity or sexuality or uh, debates on how origins, how, the, how humanity uh, has its beginning, the church for a very long time puts these arguments off. And we put these arguments off for different reasons. Sometimes we put the arguments off because we don't know what the flip we're talking about. Okay? That's just a reality. Sometimes we put them off because we're like, I'm ignorant of this and I don't know what to do or say about it. Sometimes we put it off because, and I know that this is going to sound interesting to some, but sometimes we put it off because as Christians, we get really smug. We get really smug. And we say things like, of course God get made the world. And people say, I, I just don't know. And you go, ah, only the fool says in his heart there is no God. And you end the conversation there. You know how many friends you're going to make with that? Not many. You're going to keep your church friends, and they already agree with you, or supposedly agree with you, right? And so we're not actually moving in any way forward. But the, the culture keeps progressing. And we have to progress with the culture before you panic, I don't mean accept 
their premises. I don't mean accept their lifestyles. I don't mean accept the way they want to think or the way they want to do things. But we have to be willing to engage with their questions, with their ideas, with their heart in every way possible. We must engage because time waits for no one and culture waits for no one. And we as the church might look like a bunch of dark ages people if we're not willing to engage in a deep way, okay? Well, some of the reasons, though, um, for this, some of the reasons for our Genesis series, some of the reasons for our, um, our How to Understand Your Bible series, all of this is really geared to get you to think outside of the box, Outside of maybe, if, if anything, outside of your box so that you can be prepared when the world asks you questions and at times really hard questions. I've gotten this from uh, more, than, more than a couple people now uh, where they'll ask the question of, so if I study all this stuff and have all these answers and, and, or at least have some answers to things, uh, I still don't have people in my life that are going to ask these questions. So why do I need to understand that? Or why do I need to know that? And, and my response is always the same. You might not have people in your life now that ask those questions. But you will someday. If you're a mom, someday you're going to have children that do it, probably. If you're a grandmother, you're going to have grandkids that ask these questions, right? Uh, we're, we're getting to a point where we have to be able to field these questions or we might as well just surrender it all and say, nobody talks about any of this stuff. Let's just put it on a shelf somewhere. Let's just ignore it. Well, that won't help. The secularization of our culture will speed up. Why? Because culture waits for nobody, right? Culture is just going to run out of control if we are not careful. So, Again, time waits for nobody, so we have to pivot. Culture waits for nobody, so we again have to pivot. And we have to begin to explain things to people. We have to start to, to give better explanations for things like the origins of the world, for things like sexuality, for things like gender fluidity, and all of these different concepts that are coming today. And we have to have well-thought-out, kind, compassionate uh, uh, real answers, not smug, not mockery, not any of those things. But here's the problem. In order to get there, we have to be uncomfortable. And you know what that means? That means we have to listen to all these different worldviews and ideas that come our way. Okay? And here is the only way, and this is what I want to set as the vision for 2023, uh, hopefully as a church, that we will move forward in this kind of concept, and that is in order to listen to anybody, do you know what you have to do? You have to shut up. I love that. Thank you very much. Right? You have to shut up. You have to stop talking. Do you know what it takes for you to truly listen to people's beliefs and worldviews and ideas so that you can have a legitimate answer or at least know what to do? You not only have to shut up, but you have to press pause on your opinion. So this is the theme of the year, okay? And hopefully it's the theme of many, many years to come. That when you're listening to someone, you press pause on your opinion. And you hear what they say so that you can actually make a real response. Now, confession moment. I suck at this. 
It's hard because I've spent most of my life formulating my opinions. I've studied them. I've vetted them in my mind or I've vetted them in my studies. And so therefore I come to this. But yet even then, my responsibility is to press pause on my opinion and to work towards something of listening to the culture as it rapidly moves forward, as it waits not for me or anybody else, and I have to look at it and say, okay, what are, what are they saying? What are they in need of? What is the problem? So that I might actually have an answer. Because if you have kids, if you have kids my age, uh, my kids' age, uh, if you have kids that are my children's age, they are going to hit you with very tough questions. They're going to hit you with very tough questions. Whether they're homeschooled or not, church doesn't matter. Why? Why are they going to do this? Because your kids, like my kids, have access to the internet. And the internet's got way too much stuff on it. And that stuff is getting people this way and that way and this way and that way. And it's all kinds of chaos. And you have to be prepared to answer these questions. Sometimes Christians have this approach, which is this kind of us for and no more, huddle up, frozen chosen concept where we we just gather around all likes and sames and we act as though this is what God wanted of us. But this is exactly what the disorder of Israel was in Genesis, that they were supposed to be priests to the nations, they did nothing. They were supposed to minister to the world. They kept it to themselves. We're facing the same thing today. and We have the opportunity to minister to the world, to be public-facing, as we like to say in, in business circles, right? Or to be outward-facing. And yet, the church tends to be inward-facing because it's comfortable, quite honestly. So we have to be able to press pause on our opinion enough to listen to people and then be willing to actually engage with their questions and their ideas. And I think we have a good opportunity to practice this when we press pause on our opinions within the four walls of the church. Because I don't know if you know this, but if you look at the people next to you, they don't agree with you fully. It's a simple fact. They don't. They don't agree with you on a lot of things, I would imagine. And because they don't agree with you, you have to be able to listen to them and find out why they believe what they believe. And you can't just look at them smugly either. You're supposed to love them. They're like good people, according to Jesus. You know, They're like his people. That's a pretty awesome thing. So throughout the course of our How to Study the Bible series, or whether it was... Genesis leg one, and we talked about the multiple forms of creation, or uh, the second leg of Genesis and the disorder and the ideas that come with that, the four types of knowing that we discussed in the early stages of this, or concepts about the scripture and how it was formed and what do we mean by inspiration. We have to think through these ideas because if we can't have the conversations with each other, we will never have the conversation with the world that's asking tougher questions. We just won't. We'll be panicked. We'll freak out, right? So uh, I encourage you to go back on those previous legs of the series and, and listen to those things and continue to ask questions. I, I've, I've had too many questions and I don't, I'm not even caught up on my responses yet, right? But, but ask questions of those things 
And as you ask questions of those things, we're headed into the third leg of this series where we're going to talk about uh, uh, the, the patriarchal narratives, right? The, this, this bigger picture. So what I want to do is I want to give you a bit of an introduction on, on what Genesis is and what's going on here. And then I'm going to come back to culture not waiting for anybody because we need to change our dispositions and our hearts. We need to be able to pause our opinions. So how many of you know Genesis is about beginnings? Genesis is about beginnings. Uh, now, I'm not talking about the multiple beginnings that I talked about in the first leg without the definite article and all this stuff, although I want to contend for that. Um, I'm talking about the beginnings of three very important components. Number one, Genesis tells us of the genesis or the beginning of the world, of the cosmos. The second thing it does is it tells us the beginnings of humanity. This will be on the screen. And then third, it'll tell us, uh, it tells us of the beginnings of Israel, of beginnings of a chosen people. And as we begin to explore this chosen people, we're going to yet again have to press pause on our beliefs or our opinions about things, and we're going to have to ask deeper questions. Uh, it, is, it is the election or the choosing for service of Israel that formulates our opinion on this beautiful biblical concept called election. And yet we have to ask questions about what that means. We have to look at that. And we have to look at it from the beginning all the way to the end. But we have to press pause in our opinions in order to see some of these things. And to welcome growth in our own ideas or even change completely in our ideas. So the book of Genesis focuses on the early stages of God's relationship with humanity, right? That's a beautiful thing. His image bearers are a unique, we are a unique thing. And then it sets its focus on his plan to redeem the world. Because what, has, what have we learned about Genesis? So far it has been God is a God of order, Man disordered things, and God through redemption, God through salvation, God through his son, King Jesus, is going to restore that order, okay? And so we start to see the picture of redemption in the world begin in Genesis, and it's such, a, such an amazing thing. God chooses a man named Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and uh, his descendants, or his would-be descendants to participate in this grand plan of his, okay? So we've got this story of redemption, and we've got this family, this chosen people for this purpose, and all of the stories of Abraham and his family make up literally the majority of Genesis, okay? So we get hung up on the first three, five chapters, whatever it might even be the first 11 chapters, but the rest of it is this beautiful story of God formulating his plan or uh, revealing his plan plan of redemption. Uh, the name Genesis comes from the Greek, from a Greek word meaning origins, okay? So this, this idea of Genesis, this idea of origins, but the great debate comes with, of course, what do we mean by the origins, and we'll talk about that in a second, but we also need to talk about the origins of the book itself. This is another area where we have to press pause on our opinions of things. Um, the debate over the Pentateuch, which I've covered before, the debate over the Pentateuch is who, in fact, wrote the first five books of the Bible. Um, the text of Genesis, and this is rough for people who haven't given any study to this, but the text of Genesis does not identify its author. It does not say, and here are the words of Moses, dot, 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 right? 
It doesn't say that. What happens is that Jewish and Christian traditions ascribe the book to Moses. They don't do so ignorantly, though. It's not like they're just making something up. Let's just add an author to it. They're doing it based on certain key texts and ideas that, that are presented, right? So they might look at something like Exodus 20, where we get this notion that, that uh, Moses is this kind of first writing prophet or first prophet who is writing things to Israel. Um, we get the idea from, if you're a Christian, we get the idea uh, from Luke in 2444 where the final chapter of Luke kind of describes Jesus is speaking and he talks about, uh, he uses these words, the, the law of Moses. And what we've done with that is we've made that to mean if it's the law of Moses, it came from Moses, therefore Moses wrote it, right? You see the logic of that. That makes sense. Yet at the same time, there's challenges with that. And why are there challenges with that? If Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, then we have Moses recording his death post-mortem somehow or before he even dies in Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 12. So what does this indicate? Pressing pause on our opinions for a little bit. Very, very studied scholars look at this in vastly different ways. Some look at it and say, of course, there were other writers like Joshua or something like this. Still others look at it and say, this indicates an editorial process that takes place in Scripture. And we've talked about that. And then when we start to discuss the ideas of editorial processes by pausing on our opinions for a bit, we have to ask a deeper question, and that is, what do we mean by inspiration? What does it mean? What does it not mean? All of this matters, right? All of this matters deeply to us being able to answer questions. Now, you look at this and say, this just sounds like internal dialogue, internal arguments, Nathan. It doesn't matter. But it does matter because if you believe that the Scripture is inspired, and it is my opinion that you should, um, if you believe that the Scripture is inspired, you should know what that actually means or you should dive into the meanings of that before you go using the Bible to slow down the culture that isn't waiting for you. You need to know how to use the Bible. Because if you don't, here is, the, here is the response of the culture. You don't know how to use the Bible. You use it as some sort of weird propagation of fairy tales that don't make any sense of the way things happen, but science seems to prove otherwise, or whatever it is. And people look at you and go, keep your fairy tales. I don't want to hear your nonsense, right? Or you could look at these things in a much deeper way, and maybe you'll find profound answers and that's what I hope we will do as a church right is that we will find these answers so who wrote the book and what does that mean about inspiration and what are our views of inspiration and how does that all play together matters deeply as the culture speeds forward the structure of Genesis briefly is, is this. There are two kind of major sections of the book of Genesis. The first is Genesis 1 through 11, and that is often referred to by scholars as primeval history, right? A primeval history. Um, it describes the creation uh, of the world, the ordering of the cosmos, and then the disorder of man. On top of that, we also have uh, the, the Noah story, the flood, and then we have the Tower of Babel. And those are interesting stories. And we have to have right understandings of them or we have to seek right understandings of those if we're ever going to explain it in the culture. 
right? How many of you have ever been hit with the question, do you really believe that God flooded the whole world? How many of you have been hit with that question? How many of you have also been hit with the question of things, I'm skipping to, uh, I'm skipping to a, a later point in the story of the scripture. How many of you have been asked the question, do you really believe a man was swallowed by a whale? How many, right? Like, we, we have to look at those questions, and we have to actually have reasonable answers, but we have to listen to people's questions, we have to listen to their criticism, we have to hear them out by pressing pause on our opinions, taking a deep breath, ears wide open, mouths really shut, while we listen to what their protests are, or what their questions are, or what their concerns are. And we should never be afraid of their questions and their concerns. We should never be afraid of it. Why? It's my view that no matter what science discovers, and you have to follow exactly how I say this, no matter what science discovers, the Bible can be understood to explain it. No matter what science discovers, the Bible can be understood to explain it. The alternative is, you make an understanding of Scripture that you want it to say, science says otherwise, or others say otherwise, and now we have a contradiction on our hands, or we have backpedaling from Christians, right? Well, maybe it's different, uh, I don't know. Why don't we just embrace the fact that we don't know? We don't always know everything. Can I get an amen on this? Something right? We don't always know everything, but we have to be willing to press pause on these ideas. So the first section of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, deals with this. It deals with the flood. It deals with this Tower of Babel, which seems to be uh, over and over a replay of humanity's uh, lack of trust in God, right? So think about the, the Noah story. We've got a savior, and we've got a vessel for salvation, and then right after he gets off the boat, he starts planting a vineyard, and sometime later he's getting drunk, and his son's doing something, and it's all kinds of weird, dysfunctional Jerry Springer chaos, right? And so all this stuff happens, and we're just repeating the same thing. Did they have to do it? Not according to God. Cain didn't have to kill his brother Abel, but he did. So history repeats itself, and then we have this grand story of Babel, and it seems to be that man is yet again trying to uh, transcend this, uh, this, this gap between heaven and earth by building himself to heaven, by taking over God's spaces, by building what is understood in the Tower of Babel as to be a temple structure. But this time, it's his own, and he's going to do it without God's help. How good is it if you have a church where God's spirit is not present? It's not good at all. It's actually, it's actually destined to die, right? right? And it is very, very, very lacking in God's movement, in his, in his gifts, in his understanding, in his growth, right? That doesn't have to be the way everybody understands it, but I am saying you can't grow without his spirit. Why would you want a temple without God? And yet that's exactly what people seem to have wanted, right? So, so we have the first section of Genesis, and then we split into the second section of Genesis, which is the patriarchal narratives. And so in the patriarchal narratives, we have Abram, uh, who becomes Abraham because God blesses him to be a great nation. And uh, he also gives a promise of children through his wife, Sarai, who becomes Sarah later. And we're going to get to all of this. And many of you probably know all these stories. But we're going to walk through this. But guess what happens with 
uh, with even Abraham. Abraham does exactly what we see in the garden, exactly what we see in the flood, exactly what we see at Babel, and that is Abraham tries to take the matters into his own hands. He tries to accomplish God's plan himself. And this is a repeated problem, right? Repeated problem. So God is telling us, and he's going to show it through the whole story, he is telling us that he is the only one who can redeem us. Because you know what happens to you and me? We keep doing the same stupid over and over. Can I get an amen? Bob. (laughs) It's true. We just do the same thing over and over. So the outline of Genesis is is something like this, and I've got it on the screen for you. Uh, First is creation, sin, and the early history of nations, right? We see that in Genesis 1-1 through 11-32. As I like to say, it is is order and disorder, and then this story of, of perpetual disorder. The second leg of the outline is the life of Abraham, and that's going to take us from chapter 12, 1 to 25, 18. It's a big span, right? Uh, Third, we have the lives of Isaac and Jacob, 25, 19 through 36, 43. And last but not least, the lives of Joseph and his brothers in 37, 1, all the way to the end of the book, right? And so we're going to be looking at all of these things. And it's going to be important that as we look at all of these things, we embrace them, we embrace looking at them with an idea and a mindset and a heart that is willing and able to press pause on our opinions as we grow in our understanding to make sense of all of the stuff around us. Time is waiting for no one, so we must pivot. The culture is waiting for no one, so we must pivot. Pivot does not mean adopt the world's viewpoints per se, but, the, but pivot does mean be able to listen and understand what the questions are and what the needs are so that we can actually give real answers. Um, I want to give an illustration though uh, right off the bat uh, and tell you some of the reasons, some of the things that stand in the way of us pressing pause on our opinions, okay? So one of the things that stands in the way of us pressing pause on our opinions is an idea of, um, an idea of insecurity, right? If we press pause on our opinions, then we're insecure about where we stand in life. How many would say that that's true? You've ever heard somebody say, somebody's ripping down your house of cards, right? You need a security, and that security comes with your belief system. Well, sometimes we're afraid to pause our opinions and listen to others because we're deeply afraid that that's going to get destroyed. But if it's wrong, don't you want it to be right? If it's incorrect, don't you want it to be corrected? You should want it to be corrected. I mean, deeply, you should want it to be corrected because, not because your particular understanding of all of God's story is what earns your way into heaven by any stretch of the imagination, but rather because it helps you understand the God you say you serve. And so we want to do this, right? So we want our our bad beliefs disbanded with, and we we want good beliefs or right beliefs to be firmly uh, implanted in us. So one is this insecurity aspect. The, the second is a fallacy that is uh, common, and that is this kind of appeal to history or an appeal to uh, tradition. 
right? And this is actually fallacious at times. Uh, you've probably heard people say this. They say, um, if you want to grow in your understanding, you should read. How many of you know that? You should read, okay? And reading doesn't always have to take the form of looking at pages. We talked about this last night in a fun conversation. You can also go for audiobooks. Do it. It's awesome, you know? So anyway, so you could do that. But the idea is you have to read. But there's this other notion, and it's actually a foolish notion. It's, let me, let me correct it before I screw this one up, right? It is, it is partly foolish. It believes something sacred about the past that it probably shouldn't. And that is, you should grow by reading, but if you really want to grow, you should read dead authors. How many of you have heard that, right? should read dead authors. You should read dead authors, unless they're dead wrong, right? And then reading dead authors that are dead wrong makes you Dead stupid, right? I mean, just over and over and over, you repeat the problem, okay? So dead authors are wonderful, and actually, all of you, if you read your Bibles, participate in this rule already, because everybody who wrote anything down in the pages of Scripture is dead, 100%. They all died, okay? Right? Oh, Jesus was quoted. Jesus was quoted. He didn't write anything, okay? Everybody else is dead, okay? So it's really important to understand that that is an appeal to something. Here's why it becomes a problem for us pushing pause on our opinion, because we go, but my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, my dad, they told me this, and why would they tell me something that's wrong? It doesn't mean they were maliciously telling you something that was wrong. Maybe they were told wrong. Do you know that that's possible? <laughs> like, my dad's not here, and neither is my mom, because she had to work today, so like, it's, it's open season on them today, right? right? My dad taught me all kinds of wrong. No, he didn't. <laughs> anyway, but, it's, but, but your parents can be wrong. Your, the people of the past can be wrong. As a matter of fact, we know that they've been wrong when it comes to the fact that we live in a heliocentric universe. They were wrong at one point. Don't read that dead, dead author. That's not going to help you any. Right? We've got something that has changed over time. So dead authors is not a solution to anything, but it does stand in the way of us pressing pause in our opinion because we put great authority in people of the past or in our family members or whatever. The last deterrent for pressing pause on our opinions is a fallacy called an appeal to, appeal to authority, which is similar to the appeal to tradition. Um, an appeal to authority says that if somebody, we, we experienced this during COVID, guys. It was a bad season for fallacies or fallacious living, right? And that is, so-and-so who has these credentials said so, therefore it's true. So did Dr. Fauci. Anyway, okay, moving on. So, so my, right? So did all of these people who assert lots of things. Are these people worthy of respect for giving their lives to study these things? Yes. Don't downplay education because you didn't like education. Don't. Please don't, right? But what you shouldn't also do is the opposite, which, is says, which says, well... Dr. Michael Heiser said, therefore, it is never wrong. Also true about yourself. For me, this is a challenge. I know what I'm suggesting, too, in this, and that is I am telling you very clearly, you don't have to believe everything I say. But I thought everybody here was smart enough to know that already, okay? So, but I want to make it clear. I want to make it clear. You don't have to believe everything I say. But what I would suggest is you at least 
listen to what I say, and then reason with me and others about their beliefs and their ideas, right? And this is hard. So there's a lot of things, there's three main things, in my opinion, that stand in the way of pressing pause on our opinions. It is, it is comfort, a lack of, we don't like change, and so that makes us discomfort. Our house of cards might be torn down, we're scared of that. The second is an appeal to tradition because somebody ancient and dead said it, it has to be true. And then an appeal to authority which says if they have some sort of, uh, some sort of ranking, some sort of uh, you know, credentialing, then therefore they are right. That's not always true. That's not always true, okay? So does that mean we shouldn't respect them? No. Again, you should respect the people that you're, you should respect anybody you're listening to anyway enough to listen to them and shut up, Right? So let's, let's think about this for a second. And I just want to give this as an illustration of pressing pause on our beliefs. I'm going to go through the seven views of the first days of Genesis's creation story, the, the, the days of creation, right? I'm going to go through seven. I'm not doing an extensive thing. You're going to be out of here in 10 minutes probably. But the point is I want you to see these different views. And then I want to make a point after each one. So the first one is this. The first one is the 24-hour days view. This is young earth creationism. This is creation museum concept. The days described in Genesis 1 are consecutive 24-hour periods of time. This is indicated by the phrase evening and morning and the coupling of the Hebrew word yom with a number. Guess who came up with that? People with PhDs, people that have studied and dedicated their life to understanding God's word. So, should we throw it out? Nope. You should press pause on your opinion to hear it out, okay? Does that mean you have to settle here? Heavens no. I don't settle here, but I am absolutely willing to listen to this idea repeatedly, over and over, and listen for better arguments and better ways to see it, right? Next one, that's one. Day-age view. The days of Genesis are a chronological description of the remote past, where each day corresponds to a long period of time. So this is going to be separated from the next view, but this view says each day is in, indefinitely long. We don't know. Right, And therefore, what does that do? It helps us give explanation for what? The seeming old age of the earth. Guess who came up with this idea? PhDs. People who are really smart. People who have dedicated their life to this un- lives to this understanding. Should we throw it out? No. But you should be able to pause your opinion and listen, it, listen to it through. Right? Listen to these ideas. Number three. The progressive creation view. Creation occurred over six 24-hour days, each of which was separated by long periods of time. Right? We don't know what those are. Creative activity was intermittently punctuated right, by eons of time. And so you have a 24-hour period, and then who knows till day two? And then a day two, and then who knows till day three? Right? All of these ideas. What are they trying to explain? trying to explain things that they're seeing as the culture moves rapidly forward and they can't stop it. But they're trying to understand it. You know who came up with this idea? PhDs. People who've dedicated their lives to this study. Okay? Are you getting a trend already? People that are very smart think very different from each other. And guess what they do versus the church? They seem to get along. 
Guess what they do versus the church in the world? They seem to get along and be able to explain things at a much better way, a level, to other people. They need to do this. So the next one. The next one is the literary framework. And I I love this idea. I don't know that I can settle here, but I love the idea. The days of Genesis do not describe a linear sequence of 24-hour days. Genesis 1 conveys a structure outline of creation activity where the description of days... One, two, and three, conceptually parallel with days four, five, and six. I told you about this in our first and second leg of the Genesis series when I talked about functions and functionaries, right? So day one through three are preparatory acts to the acts of days four through six. So let's walk through those briefly. The next one. Day one, creation of light, separating light from darkness. And then day four, the functionaries are created. So where's the day, where's the light come from on day one? Don't say God because it was created, right? Like, it's important to think about. Day two, separation of the waters and formation of the sky. And then day five, just so happens, water and sky are filled with living creatures. Now that makes sense. You've got to create a container for them and then you put them in it, right? I get that. But it still doesn't explain that first one. And then day three and day six, dry land and vegetation appear. Day six, land animals and humans are created and sustained by plant life. There you go. This is a, this is a particular view called the literary framework. Guess who came up with this idea? PhDs who have given their life to study these ideas. Okay? You can't just throw people away because you go, well, I disagree. You can disagree Yay. Okay. You can disagree, but you have to respect and honor these kinds of things. The next one. Next one is revelatory days. These are some that are a little bit more obscure, but they're still people who've given themselves to study it. The six days described in Genesis are 24-hour periods or less. There's a confusion. But creation did not occur on those days. Rather, over the course of six days, God revealed to the writer... There's a very powerful viewpoint revealed to the writer how he created the heavens and the earth. That's interesting. Guess who came up with that idea? PhDs. People who've given their life to these kinds of studies. Next one. Analogical. The six days of creation are an analogy for the normal human work week preceding the Sabbath. I hate that view because I don't even like the work week, right? So, so it, it's, it's a problem. But, but the point still remains that there's evidence and ideas behind this. Guess who came up with it? PhDs who have given their life to this kind of study. Last view. The religious polemic view. And I, I, I love the components of this, right? The creation described in Genesis 1 reflects ancient pre-scientific cosmology, not science. How one understands the days is irrelevant to the actual purpose of the account. To assert which deity deserves credit for creation while uh, denigrating the claims of rival deities associated with the cosmology and its descriptive elements. In other words, creation was by Yahweh God, not any of your other creatures, not any of your other gods. So polemical, some sort of fighting back against the culture. All of these ideas, guess where that one came from? PhDs who've given their life to study. All of these ideas have been brought about by very intelligent people, and yet what makes this so amazing is that they are a people who press pause on their ideas long enough to hear things out, to argue, to counter-argue, to work through ideas. 
And here is what I want so much for our church. I want us to be a people, although we have opinions. Look at somebody next to you and say, I have an opinion. Say it. Come on. Now look at that person that said it to you and say, no, duh. Right? There you go. Right? I have an opinion. Everybody knows that we have opinions. You can have the opinion. But what I, what I desire most of all is to see a church that lives its existence as time waits for nobody, as culture waits for nobody and is progressing or at least is moving in a direction that we are trying to catch up with. It moves in that way that we would be a people that press pause on our opinions long enough to hear out what the questions and the ideas are so that we can have legitimate answers to the culture. And this will help us in our relationships with one another. It will help us deeply because we'll stop these ideas that say, well, you don't see it my way, so I think i got to move on. I think i got to find people that play in my own sandbox. Guys, I've been in ministry for 24 years. There's no appeal to authority here. It doesn't matter. It's just my experience. I've been in ministry for 24 years. I cannot tell you how many times people have told me, I love the fact that we get to think differently than you do. It's so great until I hit their sacred cow and all of a sudden they go, it's not so great anymore. You know why that is? We can't press pause on our opinion. We're really not capable of it at times. And for the reasons that I listed before, we need to grow in this. I have to grow in it. I have to constantly see people coming into my life and, sadly, much to my hurt, I have to see people go from my life because of these issues. And it happens, and it's happened so much that it just, it's, it wears you the heck out, right? It does. But we have to be able to do this because what is happening around us? Time's not waiting and neither is the culture. And we better be able to answer some tough questions. How many of you have ever used the phrase, um, we're all sinners? We're all sinners. We're all sinners. How many of you know that that is often used as an excuse for you to sin and for nobody to tell you about it? Yeah. Right? You, you make mistakes. You're like, we're all sinners. Right? You know when it changes? When somebody sins against you. All of a sudden, you're like, we ain't all sinners now. You're a jerk, and you need to repent, right? That's, that's the way it works, right? How many of you have also said that when it comes to understanding the Bible, it's the finite trying to understand the infinite, and it's not even possible? How many of you have done that? You're like, it feels like it's just too much. You know, that's an amazing thing until it's your personal belief, and all of a sudden, you think you've discovered the full scope of the infinite. Way to go. Way to go. That's just not true, and we got to be careful on this. So how do we be careful? We press pause on our opinions, just for a little bit. And we listen to people's arguments, and we listen to their heart, and we listen to what their issues are, right? And then we can move forward.